0: At 815 East Gray Street in Richmond, Virginia, directly across from the Capitol building, stands St. Paul's Episcopal Church, a large and stately structure built in 1849 in the Greek Revival style. Still active and featuring an interior bathed in the light of numerous ornate stained glass windows. On April 2, 1865, Jefferson Davis, the President of the Confederacy, Was sitting quietly next to the empty seat where his wife Verena would usually be sitting in pew 63. But he had sent her and the kids out of Richmond by train earlier that week. His mind on this day no doubt filled with the thoughts of war which he knew was coming to an end and a life which might also be coming to an end as Union forces drew nearer and nearer to what had for the past five years been a Confederate stronghold and the home of his war cabinet and family. As the minister delivered his sermon, Jefferson's mind was somewhere else this day, focused on these past weeks and months, his presidency and leadership having been roundly criticized from every side, from the military, the Congress, and the public, for lapses in his military strategy, for his stubborn refusal to appoint a general-in-chief to attend to his people in crises, and his attempt to defend the entire Southern Territory with an equal effort in manpower and supplies. When that manpower and those supplies were severely reduced by the prolonged war and the South's inability to manufacture war materials and find new recruits from a dwindling supply of Southerners. His face tightened as he recalled the fall of Vicksburg, the capture of New Orleans, and the port city of Norfolk, The losses at Gettysburg. They should never have carried an attack into Pennsylvania or spent so many resources on the Western Front, and they had lost control of the Mississippi River. His generals were at each other's throats. Atlanta had burned. Richmond had suffered food shortages now for three years. Petersburg was under siege and had been for ten months. No food or supplies in, nothing out. It was cut off from the outside world, inside the starving and dying. The people were eating whatever they could find, rats were ending up in stewpots, bread was as precious as gold, starvation balls to which people came to laugh and sometimes dance with men who, in shifts, would take breaks from their line of defense which was strung around the beleaguered city, featured river water for drinking and soda crackers for nourishment. Petersburg and its people knew that to surrender was to open the path to Richmond and that would mean the end of the Confederacy. Davis had rarely left Richmond and rarely spoken with the people in Richmond. He looked over at his wife's empty seat and imagined her there, returning his gaze and grasping his hand as if to comfort him. It was best she was gone. Their world was about to come crashing down. A messenger appeared at his side, handing him an envelope. He opened the seal, which he recognized to be that of his most trusted general, Robert E. Lee. Lee, Davis knew, was 25 miles south of Richmond, doing all he could to defend Petersburg. Davis opened the letter. It was short and to the point. It read, I advise that all preparation be made for leaving Richmond tonight. Eleven words,' Jefferson thought wryly. "'All that was needed to describe the situation "'that he and the Confederacy were now facing. "'He slowly rose from his seat, "'having tucked the letter into the breast pocket of his coat "'which was laying beside him, "'and walked, as one parishioner later wrote, "'rather unsteadily out of the church. "'Wrote another, "'His face was set so we could read nothing.' But as more messengers arrived, more top-level officials were taking their leave, and the minister, understanding what was very likely taking place, dismissed the whole congregation. Welcome everyone to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This story is a great example of how closely history and legend are tied, and how exploring legends can sometimes be the best way to experience history. You and I may never find the treasure that was lost in this story, but we'll never forget the impact that those 11 words written by Robert E. Lee to the President of the Confederacy that spring day in 1865 had when Davis was faced with what he needed to do in the final hours of a five-year-long war, still holding the responsibility to carry what was left of the Confederacy, its government, and its bullions to safety in Mexico, or any one of a dozen other places. For the better part of a year, Lee's Army of Northern Virginia had held off three Union armies under Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant, but the previous day, the Federals had finally broken through at Five Forks with Union troops threatening his main line of supply and retreat, Davis knew that now Lee had no choice but to abandon Petersburg and race west, away from the capital. Richmond was doomed. Davis forced himself to think clearly. So much to do in so few hours. His cabinet, the Treasury. He had put together a plan of escape, hoping he would never have to go through with it. But now, in desperation, It would all have to come together within a few precious hours. I went to my office, Davis would later recall, and assembled the heads of departments and bureaus, as far as they could be found on a day when all the offices were closed, and gave the needful instructions for our removal that night, simultaneously with General Lee's withdrawal from Petersburg. Each department head was to see that important documents and records were packed and ready to go, and the rest destroyed. Leftover stores of cotton and tobacco were to be burned. The remaining national treasury of some $500,000 in gold nuggets, double eagles, silver bars, and Mexican coin was to be crated and taken along. Payments were owed to armies. A new government would need capital. The most famous Civil War treasure traveled by wagon to Georgia with Confederate President Jefferson Davis in the last days of the Civil War. This treasure train left Danville, Virginia on April 6, 1865 with $327,022 in gold and silver coins, as well as bullion in the form of gold and silver bars, a silver chest packed with donated jewelry from the women of the Confederacy, and even floor sweepings from the Dallinaga Mint. Kept separate from this was an additional $450,000 in coins and specie checks that had originated with Richmond banks and also was traveling with the fleeing Confederate government. Of this Richmond bank money, 50 barrels of coin, valued at 4000 each, and totaling $200,000, constituted about 40% of the bank's shipment. And to top all this off, three-quarters of a million dollars in Confederate money and bank notes, which would end up fueling a bonfire in the weeks to come in Washington, Georgia. The government of the Confederacy would head for Danville on the North Carolina-Virginia border at 8 that evening. Beyond that, South Carolina, Georgia, maybe the western states, maybe Mexico or Cuba, wherever fate and the safest route would lead them. Anyone and anything not on board then would be left behind, with the exception of Davis's wife and children and their guards, who were to meet back with Davis further south. Over half a million dollars in gold and silver was going to have to be moved by men who could be trusted, men who would give their lives to protect it, even with the knowledge that the men and government they were risking their lives for would soon be dissolved and its leaders taken prisoner by Union forces, not the kind of men who would turn against them. Davis had considered this day for months, and he knew it was coming. On the James River, lying at a wharf between Richmond and Powhatan, sat a side-wheel steamer named the Patrick Henry, which served as a base for the Confederate Naval Academy. The Academy commander was Captain William H. Parker, a man who'd been in service with the U.S. Navy for 25 years. A man with a distinguished record and career who was known to be honest, had a reputation for finishing what he started, and was loved by the 60 cadets in his academy aged between 14 and 18 whom he was training to be future naval officers and good and decent men. In addition to these cadets there were 30 or so professors, all but one of which had served in the Army or Navy. The cadets were as well trained in infantry tactics as in naval operations. It was to Captain Parker and his young men that the order was given on April 2nd, 1865 to report to the Richmond train depot at 6 pm to guard and transport the entire treasury of the confederacy over a million dollars in silver and gold bullion packed in large kegs along with bank notes and all the paperwork of the confederacy on the perilous journey out of Richmond alternating between railroad cars and horse-drawn wagons south to destinations unknown with little other than courage and loyalty to accompany them, In the U.S. Naval Academy, midshipmen are constantly taught that their jobs can take all kinds of twists and turns on and off the water. In this situation, at the climactic end of the Civil War, with Richmond in flames and the Union armies advancing, bent upon revenge, traveling by train and wagons in a broken and wild wartime country, subject to ambush at every turn, especially when fording rivers through a countryside torn with hunger and loss, complete with roving bands of marauders, highwaymen, deserters, and enemies of every stripe, including some of those within Jefferson's entourage. This is their story, and the story of the missing treasure of the Confederacy as it passed to and sometimes through the hands of masked robbers, swindlers, embezzlers, innocent farm families, renegade Union and Confederate soldiers. Generals and officers, good and bad. Cabinet members and relatives of Jefferson Davis. In fact, just about everyone involved with the exception of 50 honest Naval Academy cadets, their professors, Captain Parker, their commander, and Jefferson Davis himself. It's a wild story of the last days of the Confederacy, full of twists and turns, and the makings of a legend that has evolved from more than a little truth. The legend of the lost confederate gold davis left the church and hurried home to the confederate white house at clay and 12th streets to wind up his personal affairs the house was largely empty in view of the diminishing resources of the country on which the army of northern virginia relied for supplies i had urged the policy of sending families as far as practicable to the south and west wrote davis and had set the example by requiring my own to go "'On Wednesday, he had put his wife Verena and their children "'on board a train to Charlotte, North Carolina, "'giving her a revolver and instructing her in its loading and firing. "'If I survive, you can come to me when the struggle is ended,' he told her. "'But I do not expect to survive the destruction of constitutional liberty.' "'As he put them on the train, his daughter Maggie hugged his leg, "'and his son Jeff burst into tears and begged to stay with his father. "'Verena thought her husband appeared.' as though he was looking his last upon us. Davis had auctioned off the family horses, silver, and valuables for $28,400. He had received a check from the auctioneer, not cash. A big mistake. He sent Confederate Treasurer John Hendren with the check to the Bank of Richmond. Hendren returned with the news that the bank would not cash it, even when presented by the Treasurer of the Confederacy on behalf of the President. The banks were choked with customers clamoring for the deposits, even as officials piled together millions in worthless paper notes for burning. Meanwhile, bank officials insisted on sending junior managers along to supervise the guarding of the government treasury, half of which was legally theirs. The junior bank managers would accompany first the train, then the wagons, as the last vestiges of the Confederacy moved south by rail and by covered wagon starting that night. And on that stormy Sunday, in a panicked Richmond, looking 25 miles to the south, Confederate forces were fighting desperately at two strong points known as Fort Gregg and Battery Whitworth, outnumbered 10 to 1, in a last-ditch effort to stall the Union forces trying to enter Petersburg, and give Lee time to build his last line of defense with Longstreet's troops. The suicide mission of defending these two positions "'was given to a brigade of Mississippians "'commanded by Brigadier General Nathaniel Harris, "'and it was fighting as desperate as any scene in the war up to that day. "'At one point, amidst the smoke and the fury, "'General Harris could be seen waving the flag of the 48th Mississippi, "'the remainders of which were now tied to his musket, "'from atop the parapet, in full view of the enemy, "'and yelling at them to come and meet their deaths.' the confederates all knew without a doubt they would die in this fight their only option at this point was to take as many yankees with them as they could as they held their positions at all cost finally after hours of hand-to-hand fighting in the rain and the mud and the blood the last defenders fell beneath the surge of blue echoing hundreds of past battles in this tragic war at dusk davis left for the train station through a city rapidly sinking into chaos Frank Lawley, correspondent for the London Times, reported, During the long afternoon and throughout the feverish night, on horseback, in every description of cart, carriage, and vehicle, in every hurried train that left the city, on canal barges, skiffs, and boats, the exodus of officials and prominent citizens was unintermitted. Liquor poured into the gutters to deny the invaders Was instead scooped up by rowdies and hooligans as taverns and saloons emptied and crowds gathered in the streets. Even the Richmond prison was emptied. Supply houses and depots were thrown open to the citizens who had been too long denied. The most revolting revelation, wrote Major General George Pickett's wife LaSalle, was the amount of provisions, shoes and clothing which had been accumulated by the speculators who hovered like vultures over the scene of death and desolation. Taking advantage of their possession of money and lack of both patriotism and humanity, they had by an early corner in the market and by successful blockade running brought up all the available supplies with an eye to future gain while our soldiers and women and children were absolutely in rags, barefoot and starving. Realizing this, The crowd's mood soon turned ugly. That Sunday night, a cavalry escort stayed busy leading the carriages of Confederate officials across the James River Bridge. One soldier later wrote, The waters sparkled and rushed on by the burning city. Every now and then, as a magazine exploded, a column of white smoke rose up, instantaneously followed by a deafening sound. The streets of Richmond were left behind, ruled by mobs of drunken men, as newspaper editor Edward A. Pollard witnessed. It was an extraordinary night. Disorder, pillaging, shouts, and mad reveries of confusion. The sidewalks were encumbered with broken glass. Stores were entered at pleasure and stripped from top to bottom. There were the yells of drunken men, shouts of roving pillagers, Wild cries of distress filling the air. And that made the night hideous. Davis, at the depot, calmly awaited any last-minute reprieve from Lee at Petersburg. But none came. Lee's army at that moment was streaming across the Appomattox, away from a defeated Petersburg, and on the way toward what he hoped would be the train at Amelia Courthouse, a train carrying badly needed food for his starving, wounded, and beleaguered troops. The scene at the station was little better. The last trains out of the city sat huffing on the line. Troops endeavored to control the refugees jamming the platform, clinging to the insides and tops of the passenger cars, box cars, freight cars, and even the locomotives. The treasury gold had been boxed and loaded with 50 cadets, young midship of the Confederate Naval Academy, drafted to guard it. Captain William Parker, the superintendent of the Naval Academy, was their commander, and until that day, his home had been the side-wheel steamer Patrick Henry, the Academy's school ship which was moored in the James River there in Richmond. Captain Parker was a soldier soldier, a man endowed with a strong sense of duties, and a moral man. He was a leader who commanded respect, and his cadets, if asked, would lay down their lives for him. This was wartime and they were boys no longer. There were two trains, the first being that of President Jefferson Davis and his entourage of bank managers, the men from his cabinet, and a contingent of cavalry packed into connected cars, and the second following train to carry the Confederate treasure with the cadets and flat cars carrying wagons and horses and teamsters for transportation when the rails could no longer carry them. Parker would write in his book, Recollections of a Naval Officer, "'at the depot, a scene which I find hard to describe. "'The president's train was to proceed mine, "'which was expected to be the last out of the city. "'Both trains were packed not only inside, "'but on top, on the platforms, on the engine, "'everywhere, in fact, where standing room could be found, "'and those who could not get that hung on by their eyelids. "'I placed sentinels at the doors of the depot, finally, "'and would not let another soul enter.' Hour after hour passed, and we did not move. Towards midnight, our train started and crossed the bridges of the Richmond-Danville line, and after a short delay in Manchester, we steamed away at the rate of 10 miles per hour. The delay had been caused by Davis's insisting that they wait for any word from Lee. Evacuating the city, if it was not totally warranted, would have been a disastrous move although it was plain to anyone watching the city burn, that things would not be reversing themselves. Realizing he would not be hearing from Lee, finally, at 11 p.m., the president boarded last, and one hour later the treasure-loaded trains carrying the last vestiges of the Confederacy pulled out for Danville. General Breckinridge had stayed behind, making sure Parker and the treasure train were able to depart, and when they did, He mounted his horse and rode off to catch up with Davis's train on its way to Danville. Behind the treasure train, as it slowly chugged out of the depot, fires from government storehouses, fires the Confederacy had purposely set to deny the Union Army supplies, spread to the city, punctuated by explosions from ammunition magazines and ironclads scuttled at the riverfront, blowing out windows two miles away. By dawn, a third of the city, including the entire business district, was on fire. Captain Parker had left ten cadets behind to burn the Patrick Henry, and they had completed their mission. Flames from the side-wheel steamer illuminated the riverfront as well. Meanwhile, along the 140-mile run to Danville, plans took shape for carrying on the war. The design, wrote Davis, as previously arranged with General Lee, was that, If he should be compelled to evacuate Petersburg, he would proceed to Danville, make a new line of the Dan and Roanoke Rivers, combine his army with the troops of General Joseph E. Johnston in North Carolina, and make a combined attack upon Major General William T. Sherman. Parts of Richmond were still burning at 9 a.m. on Tuesday, when Abraham Lincoln and his son Tad, turning 12 that day, disembarked on the riverfront. They walked the two miles or so to the Confederate White House, escorted only by a handful of high-ranking officers and, almost immediately, a throng of jubilant ex-slaves. Lincoln walked through the streets as if he were only a private citizen and not the head of a mighty nation, reported the Boston Journal. He came not as a conqueror, not with bitterness in his heart, but with kindness. And generally, the divisions of Union soldiers, many black, that entered Richmond did so with a sense of responsibility, restoring order quickly, working to put out fires, and not bent upon destruction. Arriving in Danville, Davis knew none of this. Telegraph lines from the north had been cut. It was not until Saturday that the president learned that Lee had been trapped near Appomattox, and Monday, when word came of his surrender. Davis did not for a moment contemplate following His commanding general's example. Certainly better terms for our country could be secured by keeping organized armies in the field, he wrote, than by laying down our arms and trusting to the magnanimity of the victor. He wired Johnston of the change in plans. With Lee out of the war, he said, and the Army of Northern Virginia, he would meet in Greensboro, North Carolina, the headquarters of General P.G.T. Beauregard. There was no time to lose, Union horsemen were reportedly already closing in. If the rails to Greensboro were cut, it was all over for Davis and his party. And he knew it. Davis's train and Captain Parker's treasury train arrived in Danville, Virginia, on April 3rd in the afternoon. The treasury train was brought over to a siding and stayed under Parker's guard for three days. The cadets had been issued muskets and instructed that no one was allowed to enter the train without specific orders. Davis and his cabinet waited anxiously for word from Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, but nothing came. They knew things were bad, but had no idea just how bad. It was here during the three-day wait in Danville that according to authors Millet and White in their book, The Rebel and the Rose, that fifty kegs of silver realis, the cash portion of the bank money, were removed from the treasure train and hauled to the bank of Danville so the bank could trade their species checks for cash to pay Lee's armies. For this was their intended destination. The value of those 50 kegs, $4,000 each, totaling $200,000 in value. The rest of the Treasury assets stayed on the train. Danville was in a state of panic and had just as many people trying to flee as did Richmond. The scene at the Danville station was, if anything, even more desperate than at Richmond. Ten passenger cars were not enough to accommodate all those seeking to escape. Two more cars were added over the protests of the train crew, who were proven right when their old locomotive blew a cylinder just a few miles out of town. The government sat defenseless on the line until another engine could be brought up. Their escape was so narrow that Union Cavalry burned a railroad bridge just moments after the train passed over it. With so little to cheer about, Davis smiled when he heard that news. A miss is as good as a mile, he joked. Captain Parker states in his book that they did not unpack the assets from the treasure train then, and I'm quoting, except that taken for use by the government. End quote. Of the amount taken, he was given no knowledge, because that wasn't his job. And to repeat, there were two separate catches of bullion and coin on that train, that of the Confederate treasury and that of the Richmond banks. They were kept separate and treated separately. Again, according to authors Millet and White in The Rebel and the Rose, the treasury kegs were taken off the train and hauled to the bank of Danville. Meanwhile, the rest of the treasury assets and those private bank funds remained on the train under guard. Some treasury money was apparently used to redeem Confederate paper money, as previously mentioned, with treasury officials reportedly paying $1 in silver coin for $70 in paper money or species. There is no record of the total paid out, however. Authors Millett and White discovered that only one keg, and that value again, $4,000, was used to exchange for paper currency. If they were correct, this left 39 kegs unopened at Danville. Their purpose, ostensibly, to pay Lee's troops when they made it to Danville, because remember, that was their destination. But Lee's troops would never make it. I'm repeating this, I know, but it's important. Now, since only 10 kegs made it back to the train, or $40,000 in silver, we have to assume that $156,000 in coin is sitting safely, at least that day, in the Danville Bank. Legend abounds that the money wasn't sitting in the bank, that somehow it found its way to a hole dug in a local cemetery, but no proof has ever turned up on that. Treasure hunters have, again, according to unverified reports, insisted that their electronic search equipment indicated a large catch of metals buried deep in a certain cemetery in Danville. But the city has denied access and will continue to deny access to anyone trying to dig anything other than graves in the cemetery. And I think we can all understand why. It bears noting that all this has little to do with the actual missing Confederate gold. This is just a sidebar. Outside the bank, the cadets guarding the train had every right to be nervous. Without these troops, defenses at Danville were weak and could not possibly hold should a large contingent of Union troops attack. So concerned about the safety of the Treasury mounted day by day, hour by hour, and with no word yet on Lee's fate, the wires were down. Confederate officials at Danville decided on April 6th to send the Treasury on to the now unused mint at Charlotte, North Carolina. Before leaving, senior teller Walter Philbrook made the first official tally of the remaining treasury bullion and coins, a total of $327,022.90. Only minutes after the train pulled out of Danville, disorder and looting began, and Danville went the way of Richmond. "'Our children and young uns are starving,' cried a woman at the head of a mob. "'The Confederacy's gone up. Let us help ourselves.' And the troops finally gave way, and the looting began, at least until a nearby ammunition train caught fire and exploded, killing 50 innocent people. Thinking that federal forces had attacked, the rioters scattered in panic. On the way to Charlotte on April 7th, the Treasury train made one stop at Greensboro, North Carolina. The citizens of Greensboro, long a hotbed of Union sympathies, did not look forward to sharing the same fate as Richmond and Danville. No crowds welcomed the presidential train. What little sympathy and interest the fugitive officials received mostly involved interest in the treasure known to be on the train. A Colonel of the Guard recalled, we were reported to have many millions of gold with us, up to $15 million worth. Most officials didn't even bother to disembark but set up living spaces aboard the train national affairs were run out of a dilapidated leaky cabinet car. Secretary of the Navy Stephen Mallory recalled that matters of state sovereignty and secession mattered less than more pressing and practical questions of dinner or no dinner, and how and when and where it was to be had, and to schemes and devices for enabling a man of six feet to sleep upon a car seat four feet long. For his new White House, Davis took a 12 foot by 16 foot boarding house room with a single bed, table and chair in which he convened a strategy meeting on Thursday morning, April 13th. Reports by Beauregard and Johnston were not encouraging. Mobile had fallen. Raleigh was on the verge of surrender. Sherman was just 50 miles from Greensboro. Johnston estimated that he could field about 25,000 troops Grant and Sherman, the Union Army, by contrast, had about 350,000 men under arms. Davis, however, still planned to enlist fresh conscripts and rally deserters to the flag. Even though Lee was out of it, he wasn't giving up. An army holding its position with determination to fight on and manifest ability to maintain the struggle will attract all the scattered soldiers and daily rapidly gather strength, Jefferson Davis maintained. His generals were, to put it mildly, thought Davis, deluded. Neither Beauregard nor Johnston had ever held Davis in particularly high regard. Johnston in particular still harbored a grudge against the president for relieving him of command at Atlanta in 1864. I represented that under such circumstances it would be the greatest of human crimes for us to attempt to continue the war, Johnston remembered, for having neither money nor credit nor arms but those in the hands of our soldiers, nor ammunition but that in their cartridge boxes, nor shops for repairing arms or fixing ammunition. The effect of our keeping the field would be not to harm the enemy, but to complete the devastation of our country and ruin of its people. I therefore urged that the president should exercise at once the only function of government still in his possession and open negotiations for peace. And for that, Joe Johnston was relieved of command. And that was Atlanta, 1864. But now he was back. Beauregard, who had ordered the first shots of the war fired on Fort Sumter, South Carolina, and frequently clashed with Davis over military strategy, did not side with him now. I concur in all General Johnston has said, Beauregard, the New Orleans native, admitted. So did most of the cabinet. I yielded to the judgment of my constitutional advisors, of whom only one held my views, Davis remembered, and consented to permit General Johnston, as he desired, to hold a conference with General Sherman. In Greensboro, the going had become no easier. Since Union forces had cut the rail line south to Charlotte, the Davis party could only proceed on horseback and wagon. The treasury funds were divided, with $39,000 in silver left to Joe Johnston to pay his men, and $35,000 in gold sovereigns was issued to Jefferson Davis. Though it remained with his baggage, he later said he never took possession of it. He had actually given it to U.S. agents who swore they would put it to good use in establishing a new confederacy, and they ended up enriching themselves, according to some. And we'll get to that story in part two and that is a part of the legend of the missing confederate gold. Great curiosity is naturally felt north and south to learn what has become of Jefferson Davis, stated the Richmond Evening Whig, the head of the greatest rebellion the world has yet seen. And a South Carolina newspaper admitted, we would like to inform our readers where these gentlemen, meaning Davis and his cabinet, are and what they're doing, but we cannot We honor and trust him still and hold the opinion that he will yet prove himself to be what we thought him when we placed him in the presidential chair. And now it's April 8th, Charlotte, North Carolina. We reached Charlotte about the 8th, Captain Parker wrote, and I deposited the money in the mint as directed. I thought I was rid of it forever. He would not be so fortunate and he might have imagined why. Only he and his academy men stood between the Treasury's precious hoard and anyone brazen enough to try taking it in the confusion of the Confederacy's last days. That is, if the Union soldiers didn't get it first. Parker's first hint of things to come arose soon after arriving at Charlotte. After overseeing the laborious process of offloading the Treasury money and records from the train, he tried reporting by telegraph to his commanding officer, Confederate Navy Secretary Stephen Mallory, who was thought to be back in Danville, but the lines were down. At first Parker was unsure what to do because he feared that federal troops had cut the lines and might soon arrive in Charlotte. Finally, on his own authority, he decided to move the treasury further south to Macon, Georgia. Parker had no way of knowing that on April 10th, Davis received word of Lee's surrender and decamped southward by rail from Danville where he had been holding. The remnants of the Confederate government were on the move now, and soon so would the Treasury be, but neither knew in what direction or toward what destination the other was headed. Parker wrote in his memoirs, Mrs. President Davis and her family were in Charlotte. They had left Richmond a week before the evacuation. I called upon her, represented the danger of capture, and persuaded her to put herself under our protection. A company of uniformed men under Captain Tabb volunteered to accompany me. These men were attached to the Navy Yard in Charlotte. Most of them were from the game little town of Portsmouth, Virginia, and a better set of men never shouldered a musket. They were true as steel. Having laid in from a naval storehouse large quantities of coffee, bacon, sugar, and flour, we started in the cars with the treasure, and arrived at Chester, South Carolina. This was, I think, he wrote, the 12th of April. And we note here, that store of coffee, bacon, sugar and flour was to prove as valuable as gold in the days to come. At Chester, South Carolina, the lack of rail connections heading southwest toward Macon in Georgia forced Parker to resort to wagons and an Overland Trek to reach the next stop of Newberry, Georgia. He writes, We camped that first night at a crossroads meeting house. We mustered at that time about 130 fighting men. Supposing the General Stoneman would follow, we held ourselves ready to repel an attack both day and night. Once they reached Newberry, secure rail lines would take them the rest of the way to Macon. Before leaving on the harrowing overland march, Parker wrote, I hear published orders regulating our march declared martial law and made every man carry a musket. The next morning early we took up the line of march. All hands were on foot, myself included, and I gave strict orders that no man should ride unless sick. At sunset of the second day we went into camp about 30 miles south of Newberry, South Carolina and after breaking camp very early in the morning we crossed a beautiful broad river on a pontoon bridge about noon. and about 4 p.m., arrived in Newberry, in Georgia. Parker tells us, We had marched rapidly, as we supposed Stoneman to be in pursuit with his cavalry. I left rear guards at every bridge we crossed, to be ready to burn it if necessary to check pursuit. I am not sure now whether General Stoneman was after us or not, but we thought at the time he would get news of the treasure at Charlotte and follow us. During the march, I never allowed anyone to pass us on the road. And yet, the coming of the treasure was known at every village we passed through. How this should be was beyond my comprehension. I leave it to metaphysicians to solve. The Greenville and Columbia Railroad at Newberry offered a respite from the hardships of the Overland Trek. Parker, still without orders, soon had a treasury cargo and wagons and Teamsters loaded onto a train bound for Abbeville, South Carolina, 45 miles to the west. As Parker steamed toward Abbeville with his entourage on April 15th, he had no way of knowing a beleaguered, now ex-General Robert E. Lee, had that same day returned to his home in Richmond. Lee's son, Robert E. Lee Jr., later described the poignant scene as his father rode into the city on his horse, Traveler. The people there soon recognized him. Men, women, and children crowded around him, cheering and waving hats and handkerchiefs. It was more like the welcome to a conqueror than to a defeated prisoner on parole. He raised his hat in response to their greetings and rode quietly to his home on Franklin Street, where my mother and sisters were anxiously awaiting him. Thus he returned to that private family life for which he had always longed and became what he always desired to be, a peaceful citizen in a peaceful land. On April 16th, in Abbeville, South Carolina, the war was far from over for Captain Parker and the others. There would be no glory, though, only difficult decisions in the face of impossible odds. The Treasury train arrived at Abbeville by midnight on the 15th. And the next morning, Parker had everything loaded back onto wagons for a 40-mile trek almost due south through Wilderness to Washington, Georgia. Mrs. Davis and her contingent parted ways at Abbeville. Along the way southward, it seems likely Parker heard news of Lee's surrender. And he wrote, We formed a wagon train again here and set off across the country for Washington, Georgia. The news we got at different places along the route was bad. Unmerciful disaster followed fast and faster. We lightened the ship as we went along, throwing away books, stationary, and even, as we heard the worst news, Confederate money. One could have traced us by these marks and formed an idea of the character of the news we were in receipt of. From Abbeville to Washington is about 40 miles, and we made a two-day march of it, After crossing the Savannah River by means of a pontoon bridge near Vienna, South Carolina, on April 17th, Parker's wagon train reached Washington, Georgia, a picturesque plantation town. Treasury and bank assets were unloaded and stowed in a former Bank of Georgia building on the town square. At Washington, we had an abundance of provisions, Parker wrote. Our coffee and sugar was as good as gold, and by trading it for eggs, butter, "'poultry and milk. "'We managed to keep up an excellent mess. "'All the men, teamsters and all, "'were allowed plenty of bacon, coffee, and sugar, "'and if they were ragged, "'they were at all events now, "'fat and saucy.'" Unfortunately for Parker, he now received news that federal troops, a cavalry force of 10,000 under the command of General Wilson, had captured Macon, his original goal. Augusta became his new objective, and the next day, Parker and his men loaded the treasury and bank assets onto rail cars for transport by the Georgia Railroad line to Augusta. How they had evaded capture up to this point is anyone's guess. Parker arrived at Augusta only to find out the city was about to fall to Union troops. He also learned of President Lincoln's assassination and no doubt worried about the repercussions for the South as many others did. With Lee's surrender and Union troops closing in, the situation, April 18th, was now truly desperate. But Parker refused to relent in his duty and soon decided what his next move would be. He writes, "'The simple fact is that I had made up my mind "'to hand the treasure over to President Davis,' Parker wrote. "'If it were in the power of one man to do so, "'I sought no advice on that point. "'The money had been confided to my keeping,' and I determined to hold it as long as the war lasted. The war was not over, as some in Augusta would have had me to believe. So long as an army remained in the field, the war to me existed. I knew that it must soon be over, but what I mean to express is that until I knew that General Johnston, under whose command I now considered myself, had surrendered, my duty was plain to me. Whilst in Augusta and afterwards, I was advised by certain persons to divide the money out, as the war was over, and it would otherwise fall into the hands of the Federal troops. I was told that we would be attacked by our own men, and might, at the very end of the war, fall by the hands of our friends. To these statements, I made but one reply: The treasure had been put in my keeping, and I would hold it until I met President Davis, and that, if necessary, the command would be killed in the defense of it. My officers and men stood firmly by me in this, and all advances were met by a quiet reply to this effect. Davis and his cabinet may have made wrong choices in the past five years, but choosing Captain Parker and his cadets was not one of them. With Union troops closing in April 23rd, abandoning Augusta, Parker and the Treasury returned to Washington, Georgia, by train. Now set in his plan to deliver the Treasury to President Davis himself, Captain Parker still had one serious problem. He had no way of knowing where Davis and his entourage was. His best guess, however, was that Davis himself was heading south to Abbeville. So a few days after arriving at Washington, Parker ordered the Treasury assets transferred to wagon trains again for transit to Abbeville. The private bank assets, which had always been kept separate from the Treasury funds, were at this time deposited in the old Bank of Georgia building, facing the town square in Washington, Georgia, by order of Judge William Crump, the Confederate Treasury Assistant Secretary, and the senior civilian traveling with Parker. That $250,000 in coins, which remained would remain there until confiscated by federal troops in a little over two weeks. Federal troops, which, as the story goes, would leave themselves open to armed robbers. Finally, on April 28th, Parker's wagon train left for Abbeville, minus the bank funds arriving there in the afternoon the following day. Clearly, matters were coming to a head. Parker knew his duty and had his objective now, but where was President Davis? What is more, federal troops seemed to be on his doorstep, no matter which way he turned, and there was the very real problem of protecting the Treasury from hordes of paroled Confederate soldiers. Would Parker be able to live up to his promise of delivering the Treasury to Davis himself? On April twenty-ninth, Parker wrote, We arrived at Abbeville, and here I stored the Treasury in a warehouse on the public square, and placed a guard over it as before. I also kept a strong patrol in the town, which was now full of General Lee's patrolled soldiers on their way to their homes. Threats were frequently made by these men to seize the money, but they always received the same reply. One evening a paroled officer approached me and said he had information that the paroled men intended to attack the treasure that night. Captain Parker responded to the threat with his usual determination. Said he... I thanked him and went to my quarters, where I issued orders to double the guard and patrol. Everything seeming to be in a state of quietude, I retired about midnight. About three o'clock in the morning, Lieutenant Peake, the officer of the guard, tapped at my window. I can hear him now. Captain, he said in a low voice, The Yankees are coming. "'Upon inquiry, I learned that a detachment of Federal Cavalry "'had captured two gentlemen at Anderson "'about thirty miles distant the evening before. "'One of the gentlemen had escaped and brought the news to Abbeville, "'and as Mr. Peake told me, "'he thought the Federals would arrive about daylight. "'I immediately called all hands and packed the money in the cars, "'and by daybreak had everybody on the train in readiness to move. "'But I walked the platform in thought.' for had not yet quite decided to run. About sunrise we saw a company of cavalry winding down the hills in the distance, and I sent out two scouts who shortly returned with the information that it was the advance guard of President Davis's escort. And one historian wrote, probably very correctly, one can certainly imagine the relief that must have overcome Parker at that moment. Upon the arrival of President Davis's party at Abbeville, Navy Secretary Mallory formally relieved Parker of his command and disbanded the Corps of Midshipmen, ending their 30-day odyssey. Parker eventually took his parole and with his wife returned to Norfolk, his hometown, but not before playing what appears to be an important role in President Davis's plans for the Confederacy. Parker remembered that final Davis command in his autobiography. He wrote, By order of Secretary Mallory, I transferred the treasure to Captain Mikaja Clark, and by him was instructed to deliver it to the care of General Basil Duke, which I did at the railroad station. By Mr. Mallory's order, I then immediately disbanded my command. The midshipmen left in detached parties, and an hour after President Davis's arrival, the organization was one of the things of the past. And here, he writes, I must pay a tribute to the midshipmen who stood by me for so many anxious days. Their training and discipline showed itself conspicuously during that time. The best sentinels in the world, cool and decided in their replies, prompt in action and brave in danger, their conduct always merited my approbation and excited my admiration. During the march across South Carolina, footsore and ragged as they had become by that time, No murmur escaped them, and they never faltered. They were staunch to the last and verified the adage that blood will tell. The situation was rapidly deteriorating at this point, and after Parker's departure, those dire circumstances, which he had somehow managed to keep at bay, would soon converge on the ragged remains of the Confederacy. As Parker himself observed at Abbeville, the collapse of the Confederate government was near, and the legend of the missing Confederate gold was about to take shape. The first 30 days of the Confederate Treasury's perilous journey by rail and wagon having been completed, the scorecard reads this way. Lee has surrendered. The Union Army has captured Richmond and many other major cities. The Confederate Treasury has made it to Abbeville, South Carolina, without being captured. Jefferson Davis has just arrived in Abbeville and unites with his wife and family who arrived from another direction. The bank portion of the Treasury has been left in a Washington, Georgia bank. Lincoln has been assassinated, and the Union is furious, believing that Jefferson Davis plotted it, which he didn't. Meanwhile, Union troops are closing in on the bank in Washington, Georgia, and among these troops is a spy for the renegade band of black and white ex-Confederate soldiers and freed slaves who have been plotting a way to rob the Union Guard which will soon be carrying the Richmond Bank treasure back to Richmond, now in control of the U.S. federal government. After crossing the Savannah River by Pontoon Bridge on May 3rd, the wagon train encamped at the Mrs. J.D. Moss House in Georgia, on the old Washington Road, three miles from the Savannah River. That night, matters came to a head. A near-mutiny erupted over the Treasury assets, with the cavalrymen arguing that they were owed back pay and that they wouldn't receive any of it if federal troops captured the Treasury. That left Breckenridge with no choice. He agreed to pay the cavalrymen about $26 each, a total of about $108,322, even though he didn't have the authority to do so. That authority would be granted later, after the fact. But meanwhile, the payout left the Treasury with something less than $145,000. And the final irony, unbeknownst to General Breckinridge or any other Confederate for that matter, payments were unwittingly made to the 20 Union cavalrymen posing as Confederates in President Davis's escort. The 20 had been detached from the 1st Ohio Cavalry to track Davis's movements. They later received part of the reward for Davis's capture. Also, after Breckinridge and his contingent left the Moss House, he must have sent a few men back with the chest of jewelry probably fearing that it would be seized by Union troops if his group was captured, and wanting the jewelry to remain in Southern hands. He must have had a lot of faith in the Widow Moss to take good care of it. Legend has it that she or they together buried the box on the property. President Davis, meanwhile, arrived in Washington, Georgia on the 3rd, almost one month now since the fall of Richmond. Acknowledging the inevitable, he held a cabinet meeting in the old Bank of Georgia building, at which time he oversaw the last two official acts of his doomed government and then officially dissolved the Confederate States of America. In the first of the two acts, Major Raphael Moses was ordered to distribute $40,000 of treasury funds to returning soldiers at Augusta, Georgia. Then Captain Mikaja Clark was appointed acting treasurer to take care of what remained of the Confederate assets. Davis then departed Washington midnight May 3rd, May 4th riding almost due south toward the Florida border with a small escort. Captain Mikaja Clark took charge of wagons loaded with Davis's baggage and that $35,000 you might remember in gold sovereigns that had been assigned by Davis to give to trusted agents to start a new Confederacy. Clark was to catch up with Davis after making final payments of the Treasury at Washington. And it's right here that a large portion of the remaining Confederate gold gets sidetracked. In Washington, Georgia, that $86,000 in gold was issued in the hope the Confederacy might live on in the West. To that end, Clark turned over the remaining Confederate gold coins and bullion to Navy paymaster Lieutenant Commander James A. Semple. Semple, accompanied by Navy Chief Clerk Edward Tidball, was ordered to hide the $86,000 in the false bottom of a carriage and take it to Charleston or Savannah. From there he was to ship the gold to Bermuda or Nassau and thence to Liverpool, England for a deposit in an account for the Confederacy. If you recall authors Millet and White from Part 1 and their book The Rebel and the Rose, they both tracked that $86,000, which would be worth millions today, by researching correspondence between the two men, researching property deeds, and turning every scrap of historical data they could find on our trusted naval paymaster Semple and naval chief clerk Tidball, and it looks as if both swindled all of it for their own gain, pulling in an accomplice who, incredible as it sounds, was the brother of the first lady of the Confederacy, Verona Davis. According to authors Millett and White, Semple and Tidball succeeded in getting their hidden cargo of gold only as far as Augusta, Georgia. There they met with Verena Davis's brother, William Howell. Howell had worked under Semple as a civilian purchasing agent for the Navy. Semple decided to ignore his orders and split up the hoard. Tidball got $27,000 in gold coins. Howell got $25,000 in gold bullion and Semple $34,000 in gold coin. Then they went their separate ways. Tidball managed to get his gold safely to Winchester, Virginia and in 1867 bought land and built a farm there most likely with that Confederate gold. Semple split up his share and left it in the care of trusted friends in Savannah while he traveled incognito for some months to avoid arrest. Howell, meanwhile, decamped from Augusta for Montreal, Canada, taking with him his mother and Verena Davis's children, the plan being for Verena to catch up with them when she could. Howell apparently used the gold to support his and the Davis family and begin a new business in Montreal, though Semple may have retrieved part of that hoard. Semple eventually used his goal to pursue a desperate plan to help the South, that of drawing the United States into a war with Britain. In a war, Semple believed the North would need the South, and therefore be forced to lift the harsh terms of the Reconstruction. So, for the next couple of years, Semple worked with the Fenian Movement, a secret group of Irish immigrants in America and Canada. The Fenians hoped to raise an army to drive the British out of Ireland. The British government, of course, was none too pleased that the U.S. government was doing little to impede the Fenians. This, along with other issues, raised tensions between the two countries to the point where, for a while, war did seem a possibility. If you were able to enjoy our four-part series on Jack the Ripper, you'll remember that Scotland Yard had its hands full with the Irish Fenian bombers and assassination plots during the months they were trying to investigate the Ripper murders. According to authors Millett and White, Semple traveled the country on behalf of the Fenians, perhaps as a courier, and apparently spent what was probably a large part of his Confederate gold. Another part, according to Millet and White, he gave to his friend and lover, Julia Gardner Tyler, former President John Tyler's widow. After two years or so, Semple reportedly became ill and discouraged with the Fenian plot. With most or all of his gold spent, He thereafter settled into relative obscurity in Virginia until his death in 1883. And that's how $86,000 worth of Confederate treasure, worth many millions in today's market, was stolen and wasted. Meanwhile, back in Georgia, the Washington town square that evening became the scene of an eerie bonfire. The Union Army still had not arrived, with Major Moses General Breckinridge and Acting Secretary of the Treasury John Reagan looking on, they set fire to the 600 to $700 million worth of Confederate Treasury notes, as well as all the remaining paper money and Treasury documents. Reagan took the English acceptances worth 16 to 18,000 pounds at the time with him when he left Washington to catch up with Davis. Captain Clark remembered those last hours in Washington. An impression has prevailed with some that on the last day great demoralization, confusion, and panic existed. But such was not so. The soldiers were orderly, and though the town was filled with men under no command, there was no rioting or violence. It seemed to me as if a gloomy pall hung in the atmosphere, repressing active expression. People realized that a government which had been strong and loved, the exponent of all their hopes and wishes, was, perhaps dying the death before their eyes, an agony too great for words, with the bitterness of an almost despair filling all hearts. I rode into the darkness that night as if from a deathbed. Still, there were plans afoot, and sums of money large and small were still to be had, should anyone decide to seize the opportunity. And someone did. On the morning of May twenty-fourth, 1865, Five wagons with two sergeants, five privates, five Teamsters of the 4th Iowa Cavalry, along with four Richmond Bank representatives, had their bank assets loaded into the wagons from the vault of the Bank of Georgia branch in Washington, Georgia, and departed for Abbeville, South Carolina. Assuming the Teamsters were armed, that gives us 12 armed guards and four Richmond Bank representatives not many people, to guard a $450,000 treasury. Unfortunately, there was at least one spy amongst them, and he alerted two former returning Confederate soldiers from Tennessee of the route. There are two different opinions regarding those Confederate soldiers, those being that they were either, one, bound to recapture the gold on behalf of the Confederacy and return it somehow to the Confederacy, or, two, that they were acting on their own with the idea to take as much as they could and run as fast as they could. The second looks the most likely as they gathered other renegade soldiers, amongst them freed slaves, the entire group willing to risk robbery and a noose for a chance at some easy money. The wagon train's movement was shadowed from a distance most of the day. Actually, the route once started along the old Washington Road was obvious. Legend has it that the treasure wagons arrived near Chenault Plantation 17 miles north northeast of Washington, Georgia, after sundown. The group went into camp in a horse field near the home of the Reverend Abraham Dionysus Chenault, a prominent and respected Methodist preacher, who gave them permission to camp there. The wagons moved into the enclosed lot. Horses were unhitched from their wagons. Supper was prepared, and the men, soldiers, and bank clerks alike bedded down for the night. Near midnight, 20 or so men on horseback surprised the slumbering group being outnumbered and in night clothes the defenders who apparently had failed to post a proper armed guard though carrying a half a million in treasure scrambled for the nearby woods amidst gunshots shouting cursing and demands to surrender the treasure the robbers then proceeded to the wagons broke open the wooden kegs containing the silver and gold coin and began to pillage they filled their saddlebags pant legs and and anything else they could stuff money into, and then rode off into the night. Approximately $40,000 of silver and gold coin littered the ground where the coins spilled from broken containers and from the departing robbers themselves. There were trails of coin from the site of the plunder leading off in different directions that marked the routes of the departing thieves. The coins were falling steadily as their horses raced down the road and then off through the woods on lesser-known trails to hide their tracks. an accounting by bank officials indicated that $251,029.90, about $5 million today, was stolen. It appears that local residents, including former slaves, also helped themselves to the booty, so much so that the old Washington Road name was changed to Grab All Road. And it's still named Grab All Road today. After the robbery, several bank officials made their way back to Washington, Georgia and reported the midnight robbery. What was not stolen, roughly $160,000, continued on to Abbeville by wagon and then by train to Richmond. When informed of the robbery, now ex-Confederate Brigadier General Edward Porter Alexander organized a small group of former Confederate soldiers and rode to Danburg and the Chenault area to help recover what was stolen and to arrest the perpetrators. He also augmented his small group of former soldiers with citizens of Danburg after explaining that the money was private funds from Richmond banks and not a part of the Confederate Treasury. Initially, those involved in the robbery were arrested and the money recovered, but the situation deteriorated to the point where guns were drawn and threats were made. The problem was that the Danburg community residents found themselves guarding their guilty neighbors. Alexander decided that the money recovered was more important than arrest and possible bloodshed. So they gave up, took the money with them, but left the thieves alone. The guilty were released on the promise that the money taken would be returned the next day. Judge William Reese, who was with Alexander's party, had, in fact, no authority to issue arrest warrants since the collapse of the Confederacy anyway. Alexander and his ex-Confederate soldiers recovered approximately 70000 from robbers and citizens he returned to Washington, Georgia with approximately 111000 That was 40000 found on the ground at the robbery site and another 70000 or so recovered from robbers and citizens. This $111,000 was deposited at the Bank of Georgia branch at Washington. The thieves had successfully made off with about $179,000. As you might expect, stories abound as to what happened to the $179,000. For example thieves hid it in the woods and recovered it later, or they threw it into ponds or creeks to be recovered later, or they pulled up fence posts and buried it there to be recovered later, or it was taken west and funded some venture or business, along with even other theories. There's no way to verify the individual stories, and in fact, these events could all have occurred. Local citizens might well have hidden it and recovered it later. Returning Confederate soldiers, however, unfamiliar with surroundings, would have been hard-pressed to stash it in the woods at midnight or in the wee hours of the morning and then attempt to return to find it later because they wouldn't have recognized any of the landmarks. Those involved in the heist were not initially pursued. Only Alexander made any effort to track down any of these individuals. No federal effort was ever made to recover any of the stolen money until late July, as will be revealed shortly. If one were to add up all the sums that were claimed to have been taken by those boasting to have been a part in the robbery, they would exceed the total amount in transit by a factor of at least five. The robbers rode off with the money, pure and simple. As the story goes, not a single coin has been found at the alleged robbery site or in northern Wilkes County or Lincoln County since then, which can be traced back to the robbery. It was reported, however, in the late 20s, a gold bar was found at the base of an old house chimney in the vicinity. Well, the robbery at the Chenault Plantation created a lot of stir. And here's where the story gets Wild. As in Brigadier General Edward Augustus Wild, USA, of Massachusetts, who arrived on the scene just a few months later. Wild graduated from Harvard with a medical degree, traveled and studied in Paris, France, and had been a medical officer with the Ottoman Army and served in the Crimea before the American Civil War, during which he was a rabid, uncompromising abolitionist. He dropped his medical status and served as a captain in Company A of the 1st Regiment Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry from May 1861 till July 1862. He fought in the First Battle of Bull Run and again in the Peninsula Campaign where he was wounded at the Battle of Seven Pines. On August 21st, he was appointed colonel of the 35th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry and assigned to the Army of the Potomac's 9th Corps. A fervent abolitionist, as mentioned, he aggressively recruited black soldiers for the United States Colored Troops, which is what they were called, as well as helping recruit white officers to lead them. Wilde was friends with fellow abolitionist and author Harriet Beecher Stowe and enlisted her half-brother, James C. Beecher, as a white officer in one of the new black regiments. When Wilde was able to resume his field duties, he freed hundreds of slaves in North Carolina, resettled them safely to Roanoke Island in North Carolina, and then recruited many of them to join the military. Wilde took command of a brigade of black infantry that soon became known as Wilde's African Brigade. The brigade, headquartered in Norfolk, Virginia, comprised the 55th Massachusetts Infantry, Wilde showed up in Washington, Georgia around July 21st, ostensibly to investigate charges that freed people were still being held as slaves but more likely to follow up on rumors of Confederate treasure and find a way to exact revenge on Southern slave owners. By this point, African-American soldiers, along with several white officers, comprising 40 or so troops, garrisoned Washington, Georgia. Upon arrival, Wilde immediately commandeered Washington's courthouse for use by the Freedmen's Bureau, as well as the home of Robert Toombs, the Confederacy's first Secretary of State and later Brigadier General evicting Mrs. Toombs and family with only a short notice, and no doubt ransacking the house as well. The ex-Confederate Brigadier General had escaped capture in May. Wilde seized the recovered $111,000 in the Bank of Georgia Branch, claiming its use by the Freedmen's Bureau to help relocate freed slaves, although this, this was captured Confederate money. In addition, he also gathered all the information he could about the robbery at Chenault and the missing Confederate funds. At that time, he changed his focus and put all of his attention on finding the missing gold and those responsible for it. A few days later, Wilde, along with Lieutenant William Seaton, USA, and 12 African-American soldiers of Captain Alfred Colley's company of the 156th Regiment of New York Volunteers, rode to Danburg and the Chenault areas and began looking for stolen funds which translated means putting guns in people's faces and asking them where they hid the money. Both soldiers and local vigilantes had looted the vicinity in search of the money, which soon, as you can imagine, became any valuables owned by anyone. And Wilde's troops joined in the looting, with the Harvard Med School graduate Wilde directing the war crimes. They even found and recovered the chest of silver jewelry that was left that night of May 2nd at the home of Mrs. J.D. Moss. When Wilde's troops now turned into a looting party, arrived at the John Chenault house. They shot the house dog, whose name was Jeff Davis, in front of all the children, and then ran the dog through with bayonets. This action was confirmed by a number of witnesses at the time. Male members of both Chenault families, including a male servant, were taken to the woods and strung up by their thumbs with their hands tied behind their backs in an effort to get information about the robbery, which they didn't commit. Union Army Officer Wilde and his men were in the woods for nearly two days, torturing the men, while female members were strip-searched by one of their own maids in the presence of Lieutenant Seton. They also tore apart the house, looking for valuables. No information, of course, was gained about the robbery or any stolen funds found, but Wilde's troops seized all the Chenault's personal property, money, and jewelry they could find. The charges never filed, and confined to the jury rooms of the courthouse at Washington, Georgia. They remained in custody for about 10 days and fed Army rations. General John B. Stedman, USA, at Augusta, upon receiving news that one of his officers was committing what looked like serious war crimes, rescinded Wilde's orders and had him arrested on July 31st. He was sent to Washington, D.C. for formal inquiry. The general of the Army, Ulysses S. Grant, removed him from command. He was mustered out of U.S. service January 15, 1866 and given an honorable discharge. The Army always takes care of its own. After Wilde's arrest, the Chenaults were released from custody and were allowed to reclaim what was left of their personal jewelry which had been added to the chest of jewelry that was recovered from the Moss House. That chest of jewelry, however, went missing from that point in time and still missing today. Virtually all of the known Treasury funds have been accounted for in one way or another with at least a reasonable degree of certainty, the greater part having been expended for what would be considered legitimate expenditures at the close of the war. Indeed, only a small part of that Treasury hoard was ever recovered by the Federal Government. But the whereabouts of two big catches remain in question. The thirty nine kegs of Spanish reales, worth something like sixteen million today, if in fact, They never made it back to the train. And the $179,000 in stolen private bank funds, traveling companions, but not necessarily part of the treasury. And then there's that missing chest of donated jewelry that disappeared while in federal hands. For those of you searching the woods along Graball Road, good luck and send us pictures of what you find. No roadkill, please. Thanks for joining us for In Search of the Missing Confederate Gold. Be sure to join us over at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales for Jack London January, where we offer two Jack London stories every week, all month. You'll find links to all our shows in the show notes. Reviews slowed down a little bit over the Christmas holidays, but now that everyone is back to regular routine, we hope you'll take the time to add yours to the mix. I know it takes time, Apple listeners, to do one, but it helps us a lot and we appreciate your efforts. Stay tuned next Sunday for our interview with authors Josh Mentz and Brad Meltzer. They have a new book out called First Conspiracy, and it's a relatively unknown story of how General George Washington was the target of a conspiracy in New York just prior to the British invasion of New York City a conspiracy that was hatched by New York's Governor Tryon and which resulted in the execution of one of the conspirators which was witnessed in daylight by 20,000 people in New York City as Washington wanted to set a public example of what happens to traitors. I read the story. It's an incredible story, well written, and you'll enjoy this interview. That's next week Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.